This is Swampside Chats, a podcast where every week communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, in another installment of our Not One Step Back Comrades reading series, responding to a listener suggestion, we read One Dimensional Man in Class Society by Paul Maddox Sr. Okay, so um, so we basically read Marcuse in order to read this response to Marcuse, which was one of our. This was one of our. Uh, not one not step one, back. Yeah. Uh, and so what we read was one dimensional man in class society. Yeah, one dimensional man in class society, also known as critique of Marcuse by yeah, uh, is, Paul uh, Maddox Senior. Yeah, this is Paul Maddox, the OG council communist. 1974. It's also, um, he's, he's really good with Marxist economics, Paul Maddock, and that really comes out in this piece. Economics and historical materialism. So there's a Paul Maddock Sr., presumably there's a Paul Maddock Jr. Yes, there is a Paul Maddock Jr., and he's a, uh, he edits the Brooklyn Rail, and he puts out, uh, he's putting out, like, a book series on reaction books. He recently put out a, a little tract called Business as Usual, which McNair reviewed uh, Kleiman and Brenner's and Maddox books on the on the crisis and thought that um, and thought that Maddox Juniors was the most readable and best. Hmm. Yeah. So Paul Maddox Senior and Junior both very good, and so I feel like we're just going to end up talking a lot about some of the themes in One Dimensional Man at further length and. Kind of how Maddox tries to, how how he tries to kind of go against this argument of working class integration, this this idea that we live in a society where you know humanity is integrated, to where there's no class oppositions and it's a society of opposition, and even if there's still structural classes, there's no conflict between them. Well, I honestly think Maddock is right in responding to that by saying, just hell no, that's like, there's completely still a class struggle. Yeah, I mean, I think that Maddock is responding to Marcuse's kind of idealistic argument with a heavily kind of economic determinist argument, and he's saying, listen... You can say what you want about how consciousness is being shaped by this new consumer culture and this instrumental reason that dominates society. But in the end, the iron laws of capitalist development rule us all. And the class struggle is, you know, going to express itself in society. And there's, there's periods of, you know, relative social peace. But these periods can only be temporary periods of capitalism. Yeah, like... Uh, Paul Maddock like goes really hard on like the idea that this sort this is the highest stage of capitalism and it's like perfectly annihilated any kind of like instability and in, like in terms of the economy 
and how unique in sort of like ordered capitalism is in like the mind of Marcuse. He's like, no, no, it's it's always been it's always been this way, sort of, and like uh, this sort of like stability that we have now is only temporary. This sort of uh, stability. Yeah, I mean, Maddox seems to imply that almost that Marcuse thinks that capitalism can expand indefinitely. Um, kind of one yeah, question I had reading it was about capitalism like it's eternal. Yeah, I think that's accurate. I think Marcuse here is making the right critique, and you have to admire Maddox gall you know maddox confidence in marxian political economy because he's basically admitting yeah this is going against the trends but i think the trends are going to reassert themselves well he was right in the end he's, i mean he's writing in the mid 70s he is about to be so right yeah exactly like, <laughs> so uh, painfully right the whole problem of you know i mean it's and the thing is he's but he's also kind of painfully wrong in the sense that he thinks that increased, you know, instability of capitalism necessarily will lead to progressive class struggle. Because are seeing mm. you. Does he think necessarily? He he leaves open the possibility that society will just that, that the world will basically be annihilated and this will, ne- yeah, this will never true. play that's out. Yeah, that's fair. Like, I mean, he, it's, he, it's he's he's very like I think he's very careful to qualify things in just the right way. Well, it's largely it's largely a question of timetables, isn't it? Like, Maddox never really gives, like, a clear sense of when capitalism is, is, he believes it will, you know, reach its sort of terminal crisis. He outlines, I think, and sketches a few ideas of possibilities for, like, the near to midterm, but obviously that didn't pan out. Um, but, yeah, obviously, like, you know, long term, I, I think he certainly believes that capitalism has um, dynamics that will tend to its own um Either self-destruction oh or yeah maddock is totally a follower of grossman's breakdown theory also there's like basically how he responds to this sort of like argument about like instrumental reason and like technology just sort of like dominating humanity with like no no it's actually capital that's dominating technology and limiting it Limited, yeah, and I think like, that we also touched on that basically in our mm-hmm. and when we talked about this. Yeah, and another thing that came up last time is how if you call the Soviet Union and its uh, satellites and its you know uh, doppelgangers, if you call that capitalism, this becomes so much easier because you can just say, "Look, this is just how capitalism works." Um, so we don't have to think about technology as a broader force. However, if you don't think of quote, actually existing socialism as capitalism, then you have to say, well, technological society is capitalism and this other thing. And I'm not saying that it's impossible to account for this. Again, is capital is a is actually existing socialism even a stable mode of production? If it is, isn't it the exception that proves the rule because all of its goals are exactly the same as capitalism to a degree, like uh, in terms of accumulation? But okay, so if if, if instrumental rationality uh, pr- or instrumental reason produces this kind of like social irrationality as a result of like industrial society, won't communism be an industrial society? Like, how do you how do you overcome like the problem of instrumental reason and like? Well, Marcuse's idea is like basically we have some kind of huge technological revolution. 
where you know technology as we know it today is totally transformed but the easier response is just primitivism that we have to return to our unalienated selves before the instrumental reason of technology took over but then i think really like instrumental reason a lot of it is mistaking it's capitalist relations that are often what people are talking about when they talk about instrumental reason it's the way capitalism uh, kind of shapes our uh, relationship to nature the perverse motives of capitalism yeah the irrational rationality the other thing i guess he seems like he pushes back on is like this idea of like like convergence and stuff like that like with the soviet i mean it's interesting too because like i was sort of thinking about this and i like the idea that there's like this convergence between like the soviet union and like the western capitalism is kind of like an intellectual cliche of the time like you see this kind of in like yes like billy wilder movies and shit like that like it's it's not really a notion that's unique to marcuse i don't think it really kind of oh, grasps. No, not at all um castoriadis said the same thing I think even Guy Debord had, like, a similar idea. Like, it was, it's basically, like you said, an intellectual cliche. I mean, the relations of production were really different between the Soviet Union and the United States. Whether whether you feel good about either of those, that's, that's right. true. And, and, you know, when I think about state capitalism... It's not a theory I support, but I think the validity of it as a designation for these societies is you can't find that in their relations of production because those are different. But their their ultimate sublimation to the process of developmentalism and proletarianization by kind of the world system capitalism. Yeah, he nails the role of socialism in creating a proletariat. Which is the most yeah, ironic that, twist that's of definitely history. definitely emphasis with Maddox. So early on, he kind of gets into like currency theory. Did anyone have any thoughts on that? That was super interesting. He has a kind of like a debt theory of money, and more or less shares. I'm going off on my horseshoe again. God help me. I'm back on my horse shit. But um, like he basically is like, yeah, you can't like spend your way out of this because all the government intervention. Is basically offsets all the growth, which is when you hear these arguments normally, these usually come from right wing, you know, free market yeah, non-interventionists. And um, it's, I think, at once brilliant, but also a little like head scratching to me, not because I, I don't think that it's a strong argument. I think it's a strong argument. But when you read Capital and there's the part about the 10 hours bill, one of the things that the capitalists say is that, no, 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 you're going to ruin us. You're going to ruin the whole economy if you do this. You can't, you can't put through the 10 hours bill. It's going to wreck everything. Um, and, you know, Marx gloats about, yeah, and then they, you know, they got it and society didn't fall apart. <laughs> like, um, no, it's possible we just live in a different time and things are so squeezed now that, just, you know, nothing like that is possible. But I do wonder. I, I, uh, I think Paul Maddox, what he's saying is that, you know, because the state is a rentier institution, it basically right. reproduces itself by collecting rent. And so, therefore, it exists by taxing the existing surplus value that's created. And so, therefore, 
it can't make up for the the lack the you know decline of the, you know the lack of surplus value necessary to keep the rate of profit going if that makes sense like yeah also he makes like an interesting point in terms of like increasing government intervention being a sign that the falling rate of profit is actually going down because increasing intervention on on the behalf of like the capitalists by the government is like a continuing sign that there is like crisis they need to step in more in order yeah to, like, and he kind of um argues for that idea of like state capitalism and the intervention of the state and the economy is kind of a symptom of the decline of capitalism and it's crisis ridden tendencies and as far as and, that's concerned he he does have some dovetailing with the uh converging societies thesis in that respect well, he thinks the Soviet Union state capitalist, but he doesn't really make this argument very convincingly, or goes super in depth into it. It just if it, you think about it, default. if he makes this distinction between the state sector and the private sector, and how that doesn't, and how that undermines the Keynesian economy, then what would he make of an economy where everything is nationalized? It would, you know, does that mean that there's no growth in the Soviet Union? I mean, it's. I don't see how we can balance that with state capitalist theory, if you see what I'm saying. Yeah, I, I thought the whole reason you go to state capitalist theory is to talk about convergence. I mean, he, he says Marx misses the mark on the possibility of capitalists using nationalization as an extractive kind of method. But all the same, I mean, it's not that simple with the Soviet Union. I mean, usually when capitalists nationalize things, though, it's not, is it really, it's, it's usually more related to, you know, the state and capital. It's, it's even in like a, a social democratic regime or something like that, where you have nationalizations of industry. It's something that the, the state imposes upon the capitalist class against the interest of various capitalists. And ultimately, it's coming out of their money the funding for these welfare projects you know it comes out of the surplus value that they produce and so they see the state as a parasite upon them so he says at one point um the objective op opposition between state control and private capital production is still clouded and appears as the subjective cooperation of business and government in the nominally market determined economy this cooperation, however, is only possible because it still subordinates government policies to the specific needs of big business. But the specific needs of big business contradict the general needs of society, and the social conflicts thereby released will turn into conflicts about the role of government in economic affairs, that is, will be political struggles for the control of the government in order to either restrict or to extend its interventions in the economy. This struggle transcends, either backward or forward, the established conditions and does so within these conditions. Right now, like in the United States, there is heavy state intervention in the economy to not only like the financial sense, but also in like in terms of investment in like war industry, right? Like oh yeah, there has been for over a century. You have the yeah, you have like the military Keynesian aspect, right? And that's not only is that like extremely uncontroversial, it's you know, it's uh it's it's popular. Yeah, it's popular. It's yeah, it's 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 integral. Um so, but, you know, if you, people, if you go and, like, talk about, okay, well, why don't we have something similar for reinvestment in uh, energy infrastructure or any number of things, you know, it's it's so far beyond the pale, it's not even, 
it's not even on the agenda with anybody, you know? Um, and that's just really, you know, a byproduct of the needs of, you know, capital accumulation in the United States. Yeah, his point about the mixed economy is ultimately that, yeah, you can have parts of your economy that are socialized or nationalized or whatever, but in the end, the greater laws of capitalist production are going to dominate your society. Or the nationalized property dominates your society. It's not one or the other. In the end, you either have the law of value dominating social production or you have some distorted version of it or you don't have it at all. And... But I think he goes after Marcuse the strongest, is attacking Marcuse's idea, essentially, that the state can stave off the contradictions of capitalism, essentially. And because, essentially, he's saying that Marcuse's argument that there's no longer a contradiction between proletarian and capitalist, is, it's based on this idea that, the you know, there's this huge consumer economy... The welfare state has grown so much. And so therefore, even if these objective classes still exist, basically the state can pacify these classes and integrate them into capitalism. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it, it should be obvious that that just isn't a stable state of affairs. Yeah, exactly. That's, I think, what I'm trying to get at here is that there's this very specific period in history that Marcuse is talking about. And he's kind of universalizing it. He he eternalizes stability. Yeah, and, and Maddox is pointing out, you know, hey, you're not being dialectical enough, you know. As funny as it is, because Marcuse is all about dialectics and stuff, but he's he's kind of taking the current conditions of capitalism and reifying them into a permanent kind of situation and tendency that has taken over capitalism as such. Certain critical critics just, you know, start to imbibe the ideology. Yeah. And I, I mean, think... there, there is, I mean, even in after, you know, after the crippling of the trade unions and, and things like that, and the destruction of sort of the political potency of, you know, the, the American working class. Yeah, by the Second there's... World War, uh, is Maddox read of that, by the way. World War II basically obliterated proletarian agency. I I mean I think World War I think the World War Two and the post war period probably just obliterated politics and the major parties' ability to marshal. I mean over time, but I mean I was gonna say like even in the wake of that during the beginning of sort of like you know what we broadly call the neoliberal period, even in the midst of that sort of disintegration, what still there is something to the cultural aspect where cheap access to shit and you know it's basically sort of drugging the society <laughs> has gone a long way towards getting people to be materially invested in the maintenance of this uh, yeah. way of life you know so that that would get to where the weakness of Maddox's critique is because Maddox is very economic determinist in his critique and pointing out how you know, these laws of, you know, these tendencies of the economy are basically, you know, they're going to assert themselves as, you know, basically laws of history. And the thing is, Marcuse isn't really, he's talking, he's more of an, it's more of an ideological analysis of the prevailing consciousness of this, uh, of a certain time. And so you can see and I think a lot of us notice is how much of what Marcuse describes in One Dimensional Man still kind of describes the world we live in today. And so you could say in response to Maddox that 
well, yes, there's still going to be crisis, and there's still going to be economic dislocation, and even there's, you know, class struggle, but it will only be in this kind of, you know, in this one-dimensional way where it's only to, you know, basically get ahead of another section of workers or... It's, it's, it's basically consciousness has been degraded to the point where even if there are still these class contradictions, we're still, we're still basically fucked. It, yeah. It's still situated in dystopia. Well, because he predicts, you know, when the next crisis rips, breaks through the ideological, like, fog, that, you know, oh man, oh man, it's going to be on. What, what really happened, okay? What really happened when we had a financial crisis we got, hey, let's get Obama. O- Obama didn't work. Occupy. Let's all get together, but not be socialists, but kind of be socialists. Let's take it back to the 70s, because really that's where, I really think that we've basically been in a, a long period of crisis since 1975, and that we have never actually had a recovery from this crisis. We've only had partial kind of jumps back up but we never actually had a full-on recovery well yeah there's there's no real like recovery from stagflation but there was uh, there was a world historic like like bust that was only that's only second basically to the great depression like it's um it's a big it's a big deal that it didn't produce you know rabid class struggle if you're just being like a predictive political scientist about these things it meant that either you know, crisis doesn't have that possibility anymore, or that the consciousness matters so much about how people will respond. That's ultimately, yeah, that's that's ultimately Marcuse's point, is that the consciousness is so degraded. I mean, and in I was going to say, in the piece, like, la- later on, like, Maddox, like, Maddox does actually kind of acknowledge that he... He mentions that he really took no issue with like the kind of cultural aspect of Maddox's critique, and was like, "Yeah, thanks for writing this. This is good stuff." But I think, <laughs> it, it, I mean, that's I mean, I'm paraphrasing, obviously. That's what he well, says. Well, basically. And but where he seems to take issue with it is more on the material level, in terms of you know the kind of like base political economy sense and in the class composition sense. Yeah, and the way that Marcuse focuses his analysis on this idea of industrial society. The way that he doesn't really get Marx's, for example, in Marcuse, like he does that whole thing where he like quotes Marx's fragment of machines to kind of come to a weird, you know, conclusion that basically automation is going to destroy the proletariat. And... That part was weird because he was like, Marx could have never predicted this. Also, Marx's fragment on machines. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's so romantic. It's just totally the the romanticism critique of capitalism. Well, I think the thing is that Mamadic really calls out Marcuse for thinking that the state can essentially provide a stable capitalism with growth, because Marcuse does argue that. Because obviously, ideology and consciousness and materialism they have to be connected so Marcuse couldn't just simply say this is all just stuff happening in the ideological sphere that has no relation to you know the material base or you know so in the end Marcuse does kind of have to make an argument that you basically have this adapted capitalism that's overcome crisis and, and that's why Matic focuses so hard on undermining that idea yeah Maddox basically has a problem with like Marcuse's like econ- 
economics, which is basically just dark Bernstein. You know, it's like basically what Ber the same conclusions that Bernstein came to in terms of like the economy, like crisis is uh, has been overcome by like increasing government regulation and people are actually things are getting better for the working class but like for Marcuse it's like yeah things are getting better for the working class but they're getting hollowed out as like people and yeah right know, like none of, none of it this, means this, anyone is fucking happy yeah it, this stability is actually bad it's 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 dehumanizing and bad and so is like things getting better dark Marcuse Dark Bernstein. <laughs> it's dark. true. Well, it's interesting yeah, because like, there's there's uh -huh. stability in a certain sense in that. Okay, so there's there's obviously like re recurrent economic crisis, but you know the the bourgeoisie has such a stranglehold on the levers of power that there's really nobody to challenge them for you know hegemony when that crisis comes. Right, that's how they were able to basically they like they they won from the cri from the crisis of two thousand eight. Like they benefited, it, it, they got all the money, they kept everything they had. They, like they suffered really no consequences for their actions, and they they came out stronger than ever. And you know that's basically the result of pretty much their entire class domination. That doesn't necessarily mean that the economy has mastered uh, or the capitalist state has like mastered its management of the economy it certainly hasn't but it just doesn't matter because they have you know such strong they're so uh well situated politically yeah but it i don't think i think you're right that it doesn't mean they've mastered it i mean i i just have to agree with maddock that we don't know that class struggle is what over no i mean it's 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 not i mean i certainly don't think it's over but you know it's definitely in a yeah, it's necessarily in a period of recomposition. I mean, he uh, uh, he quotes, I think it's Mark saying, "The proletariat is everything, or it's nothing," something along those lines. And he's like, yeah, "Well, so right now it's nothing." You know, like the proletarian is is conscious, or it's nothing. And he's like, "Yeah, I mean, it might remain that way, and we might just, you know, get blotted out by some kind of, you know, apocalypse, or, you know, <laughs> these class contradictions are so powerful." that eventually it's going to bubble up. I think, ultimately, it would be hard for capitalism to continue and continuously make everyone not realize that class exists. Like, I know that, you know, we're at a nadir, and, it, you know, and, and there's a lot of skepticism about whether these concepts can come back because they seem so broad and abstract. But, I don't know, maybe I have too much faith. Well, that 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 is that is that is actually one of the main lines of the Internationale. We are nothing. Let us be all. Yeah, I mean the the uh, Marx. You know, he says the, the proletariat is a revolutionary class, or it's nothing. So I really think when Marx talks about the proletariat, he's talking about something other than just labor power. He's talking about a dispossessed, organized in some sense as an, as a class that can act in history. But the thing is, you could say that the proletariat it doesn't it only exists as a potential class when it doesn't have any organization and can't act in history. And this is kind of like the point that Bordiga is trying to get across when he says without a party, the class doesn't exist because the class as a political collectivity has no means of 
acting in society, which is a little ridiculous, obviously, but if you really think about it, it is clear for Marx that a class was more than just a sociological objective thing. It was also a subjective thing. So, yeah, Marcuse on the Soviet Union as kind of moderating class relations. I think that's an important point to make. Because, really, like, so much of what happens in the 20, in the second half of the 20th century is determined by the geopolitics of the Cold War. Like, the entire wave of national liberation revolutions, the uh, development of the welfare state, it's, it's caused by these two different geopolitical blocks basically fighting over hegemony in the world in different ways. For, you know, the Soviets and the Americans obviously had different ways of, you know, interacting with the world. But in the end, they were able to, the Soviet Union was able to influence capitalism and almost give it a more dynamic approach, if you think about it. Because the whole development of the welfare state and, and kind of the modern, you know, this, the modern state kind of developed as a response to the challenge set up by the USSR post-1945. Yeah, I mean, look how, you know, just look how bananas everything's gotten, you know, since they've left. Yeah, exactly. Once they've been gone, the capitalists have just been, like, on a full looting session. They have no, and since China can join in with them, you know, it's there's nothing stopping them. Like, the... Yeah, it's like a chicken and egg thing, though. It's hard to tell, like, what's the causal element. It almost seems like it's the stalling out of profit rates and profitability that have depleted the ability to do these projects, which is the third variable that accounts for the death of the Soviet Union and the death of social democracy or, you know, regu regulatory capitalism. But I think that we are seeing today... We are seeing a resurgence in the labor movement just in raw strikes and economic conflict. But the thing is politically dominant. The main political current that sits in opposition to the dislocations caused by global capitalism is anti-globalism, basically. And it's basically a reactionary ideology of upholding the nation-state as a sort of barrier against the forces of you know, the market, basically. And so, you know, I think that's one thing that Maddox doesn't really, he doesn't really take this, and he doesn't have a theory of reaction. He doesn't understand that capitalism's inner contradictions, even if, you know, they, they don't result in this constant, totally integrated society as the end of history, the reaction to capitalism might just be that, or reactionary. And what we're seeing today with the, like, the far right might just be, uh, you know, a, a reactionary form of anti-capitalism, even though it sees itself as anti-globalist. I actually have a quote. Can we just, can I just drop a quote that I, yeah, of course. I liked? Quote, the end of capitalism, well conceivable only as the simultaneous abolition of the proletariat, may be preceded by a mere state capitalist modification of the capitalist system. Such a revolution would be not a socialist revolution, as it would only transfer the control of the means of production and therewith of production and distribution from the hands of property owners to those of politicians organized mm -hmm. as the state. 
The proletariat would remain a controlled class unable to determine its own destiny. This type of revolution has some credibility because it would appear as the logical endpoint of the increasing government determination of the economy and of social life generally, and because it follows the familiar path of previously established state capitalist systems, which are now quite generally perceived as socialist regimes. But in these latter systems, the state capitalist form came into being not in order to abolish the proletarian class, but to aid in its quick formation. Socialist ideology is here employed to cover up the intensified exploitation of labor, and it has some degree of plausibility because of the accomplished nationalization of the means of production. In industrial advanced nations, however, state capitalism would be as irrational a system as that which preceded it. The difficulties in these nations cannot be resolved by an increase in exploitation, but only by ending the system of exploitation itself. Yeah. I thought that was a really, I thought there was a lot going on in that. Well, it, it kind of makes sense though, because there's no real reason to move towards that model of kind of socialism unless you're trying to develop industry basically without having to plug into the global market. And so, yeah, it's beyond ending capitalism. That's the only option for peripheral nations that are basically. uh, They're trying to industrialize. Yeah, they're they're trying trying to industrialize and develop. Yeah, you don't, you, don't, you don't need land reform. Yeah, yeah exactly. Whether so they know it or not, they're building capitalism. Yeah, exactly. Well, they're building the material base for capitalism, basically. Right. I mean, it's all back to this this just sublimation of everything into this capitalist world system where even even its total opposition is corralled into, into developing capitalism. Um. How do we feel about his description of the Soviet relation to production? Because I, elsewhere he, yeah. How do we feel about that? Like, um, just transferring control into the hands of politicians. Um, yeah, I you think know, workers not being able to control their surplus. The this is all reminding me of like James Burnham, to be honest. Is the kind of theory of like the managerial class that he has here is that there's this managerial class that's getting greater and greater control outside of the traditional ruling classes and that this class is kind of like a new force in society and the soviet union is kind of like the ultimate outgrowth of this tendency of a paternalistic state bureaucracy to manage everything i mean you know does that discredit what he's getting at well i mean I just think that this ideology is very reductive. It kind of it it looks at bureaucracy as kind of an end in itself and not as a a class relation if that makes sense. It doesn't look at how the development of bureaucracy is really what causes the development of bureaucracy. Like it it's it's kind of like, you know, this idea that the bureaucrats that exist and control things because they're bad and mean and there's people who are able to take advantage of power but it's I, not I don't so think much that's because... what Maddox saying at all well 
But he doesn't account for why these bureaucrats, though, are able to accumulate all of this power. Sure, but he's he's not he, he's not open to that objection, though. He's incredibly economically deterministic. Like, it's not just you know some but I think, mean like, idealist. If you read his book, Marx and Keynes, like he even like comes into issues with his own theory of state capitalism. He he kind of actually hints that he might actually be like kind of wrong, and that Soviet Union might be something in transition to capitalism rather than actually capitalism. So I think that Maddox's view on the USSR is not really his strong point, and he actually kind of realizes this. And so a lot of his stuff on this issue is him kind of just trying to shoehorn it into capitalist categories. I mean, I, I feel like Maddox is just making, like, really basic Marxist, just, like, responding to Marcuse by just pointing to, like, Marxist political economy and being like, nah, you're wrong, mate. Look at look at this Marx quote right here. And it's like, to what degree would this be convincing to anyone outside of our circle? Sort of, like, circles. Yeah, I read this book a really long time ago. And, uh, I thought it was... I wasn't... I ended up reading and I finding ended up finding like a better introduction to basic Marxist economics than I found it necessarily a refutation of Marcuse. Well, yeah, I was kind of surprised when I was kind of surprised when, you know, we crack into the piece and he's like a little bit about Marcuse. All right. Now, here's how debt works. This is how spending yeah. works. Like, so we're gonna, just going to lay all this shit out and it's basically going to explain everything. And don't worry, we have political economy. It will bring it will bring the proles back, or I mean, we all thought we'll all die. But you know what? I guess that's I mean, not that's, so bad. Where's Where's the lie, though? Right, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's really not so bad. I mean, Maddox Maddox really brilliant. Like, um, and I've just been reading that. Um, I'm reading those parts of State and Revolution where uh, Lenin's pitting Kautsky and Panikuk and going back to Marx's quotes on the state. And, you know, yeah, ultimately, people like Maddock are very, very Marxian. He's got the historical materialism. He's got the value theory. He's got the falling rate of profit crisis theory. You know, that's that's big. And and he's got this, you know, he's really looking for some kind of alternative to full nationalization. He's looking for the alternative. Like, I, I really appreciate this stuff and ultimately, like, I have so much respect for orthodoxy, quote, like for uh, the SP Day and for the th even for, you know, Third International to some degree. But like, yeah, the tradition that Maddock represents recreates Marx's and even Engels' views better. Like, maybe not in terms of political strategy, but in terms of their visions of communism. I think just in terms of economic analysis, I would say Maddock is pretty orthodox as far as he, he pretty much is just straight to what capital says as far as his vision of socialism i'm not really convinced by the whole council thing i honestly think that it's not what we should be telling people is you know i that's I, not what we should be promoting necessarily as a council system well but right at the same time sure sure but like but if Maddox workers have zero workers can't have zero control over their output like well what yeah Maddock recognizes that the problem with the Soviet Union is a fundamental separation between the workers and 
the political bureaucracy that basically means that it's only a worker state in name. But, you know, I think his analysis of the Soviet Union would be a little bit more interesting if he didn't just try to kind of say, well, this is just capitalism in a different way. If that makes sense. I don't I don't find it comes into play that often, really. Like, yeah, I mean, it's this is really more of a good. Well, right. But like, did it really affect his analysis that much? Like, no. But it does kind of stand in contradiction with his critique of Keynesianism because he does point out that the state sector is, you know, it doesn't operate according to the same logic as the private sector. Yeah. Oh, of course. But, like, I don't know. Whenever I read a state capitalist theorist, I just, you know, insert, you know, insert word of choice here. Nine times out of ten. They're not trying to break down, you know, the value theory of where here's where the law of values operating in socialism. Like most of the time, they're just trying to point to some kind of exploitative relation. I I could get behind that. I think we have to be very precise in how we categorize things because it's like what you're basically arguing for is that well, you know, state capitalism is it may not be correct, but it's it's pointing out a political truth and. I guess mm, yeah. it's it's a, it's a structural it's, truth. It's a it's a political economic truth that actually existing socialism is closer to capitalism than it is to you know Marxian socialism because it is a class society. That's it. Like I don't know if that's just political. Like I think you could think something like that and still have a soft spot for the Soviet Union. You know, like yes, it's a class society, but god damn it, it's our class society. You know. I mean, I don't think the Soviet Union saw itself as a classless society. I think that they're very, very much aware of that, at least. I mean, there is the fact that they did call themselves socialism. And Matic does say straight up, well, socialism is communism in here at one point. But overall, this piece, I, it's, it's a good introduction to basically why, if you're trying to convince someone... That class struggle still matters despite the utter neoliberal hellhole of atomization and working class decomposition we live in. This would be kind of what you would want to look at. Is this is a good refutation of the basically the idea that we've moved beyond class struggle? Yeah, he basically argues that the classic Marxist analysis holds. Uh, basically, society is broadly broken up into into bourgeoisie and proletarian. There are, you know, contradictions between them and antagonisms. Uh, those aren't going to go away. They might. There might be periods of more or less integration, but ultimately the whole thing is going to trend towards, um, trend towards an un- intolerable state of affairs that requires, uh, requires a revolution. Well, look at what happened after this. You know, 1972, the hot autumn in Italy had already happened. May 68 had already happened, and then. You have 1970s, which is honestly underrated as a decade of class struggle. There was a lot of class conflict in the 1970s. It just didn't end in a victory, ended in a defeat. So ultimately, Matic gets proven right historically in multiple different ways. We see the the modern day crumbling of the neoliberal order, but also the, the wave of struggles that happens basically right after this book is published and starts to happen while this book is published. Marcuse wrote One Dimensional Man in 1964. 
And so I can definitely see I can definitely see how that would you know 1964 there wasn't much going on like beyond the just small anti I guess there was the wildcat strikes in the US yeah. but these are kind of glamorized and were very economistic in a lot of ways Here's something we can harshly critique Maddox on when he says the civil rights movement was meaningless Wait, does he say that? Like, let's let's go. Let's go to the tape. Um, and it, this doesn't appear to be just him quoting someone or something. Like, um, this appears to be where he agrees with him. Um, <clears throat> actually, however, and here Marcuse is himself a witness. Um, Non-fetishistic rationality still exists, but can, for all practical purposes, be ignored. What opposition exists remains largely inarticulate. It cannot become a social force because it represents, as yet, no material interest strong enough to oppose the material interests represented by the ruling ideology or ruling insanity. Where opposition ceases to have material force, it ceases to be effective opposition. It becomes a luxury. The deeper insight of intelligent men, who may well despise both society and its victims for defending so obstinately the prevailing irrationality, Yet, the impoverished minority must live within this irrationality and must accept it by necessity, which is then turned into an apparent virtue to make it more palatable. Even where opposition finds political forms, it finds false expressions, as, for instance, in the American Negro struggle for civil rights, a meaningless and, even in its meaninglessness, an unrealizable goal, the, quote, outsider cannot step outside existing conditions unless he risks it all his very life, by arson and looting, but then he is already back on the road to a reality which is rational. Uh, which... Yeah, I think, you know, this is just... That's classic, like, left-com kind of economism, almost. Like, if... if so, okay, so charitable read time. My, my best is that he's saying that, you know, it's the direct action of, you know, blacks during that movement. That that, that okay. was the big... That's the big deal. You know, it's. The, I, I would actually, I would disagree with that. I would say that that's a charitable. That's the, a, the most charitable I could the, be. The rational kernel of truth here is that, in some respects, I mean, you know, civil rights was in somewhat okay. Yeah, it's it. It got rid of Jim Crow. Sure. I mean, but meaningless is too really, meaningless is pretty harsh. Like yeah, but ha, has it truly integrated? Has it truly overcome black and white barriers in America? No. Has right. it? Well, this is you know, 1972. I mean, Civil Rights Act had already been passed. Like, it's just it just shows a general left calm contempt for democratic rights. But notice, notice saying that like, like it doesn't matter what your democratic rights are because you know in the end you're a proletarian and so it's false consciousness to try to fight for democratic rights. You know, just just look at how notice, much left comms have come out against like even women's suffrage. But notice like how people how many people started dying once the civil rights movement moved closer to class as an issue you know what i mean i mean it kind of led to a new development in the struggle in general in america and i think like the civil rights movement came out of class conflict like the civil rights movement yeah. came out of you know the communist party basically organizing in the 1930s and kind of building the organizational roots i just think that this is you know, it's the idea that democratic rights are meaningless 
and right. even unrealizable. It's just like economistic, like ultra left stuff. Yeah, yeah. very typical. Yeah, I mean, and yeah, and the march on Washington with King was literally a march for jobs and justice. So I mean, you know, there was like, like to call that march on Washington with Dr. King meaningless. I just have contempt for that. Well, I don't know. It literally, it literally changed the legal superstructure of society. It also sort of like, and this is probably chump change to Marxists because, you know, oh man, being embedded in the national narrative. But, you know, this stuff is essential for creating some kind of civic nationalism, which carves out a little place for people of color in American life. And okay, it's subsuming them into nationalism. So that's like kind of fucked. But uh, before this, it was basically more or less an explicitly white supremacist country. In, in, yeah, I mean, that, I mean, I, Paul Maddock himself is a pretty like he's also really sexist. Like, <laughs> I remember right? reading like this interview the FBI did with him because they were investigating him, and he was like, "Yeah, my wife, you know, she she's not interested in politics. Like most women, she isn't, you know, you know, she doesn't partake in political." There's matters. also the infamous, yeah, it was okay that the nuns got raped in the Spanish Civil War. He, he says he he says I, I don't, don't care, care if the nuns got raped. Like it's like an interview with someone's talking about the Spanish Civil War, and he's just like, I don't care about the nuns getting raped. Like it's it sounds really bad. <laughs> so you know, Paul Maddock, he's basically your bro left com, really good with economics, but not so strong on social issues. And this is why I was kind of rambling on about like the possibility of like a right wing opposition to capitalism. Because it just seems like in this kind of, you know, Marxism that's blind towards the meaningfulness of democratic rights, it's easy to kind of lose sight of how class struggle could possibly be reactionary. Or there could be a reactionary response to capitalism. So maybe Marcuse is getting at something that Matic is uncomfortable with because the kind of guaranteed progressiveness of the working class is very much in question at this point. Um, let's see. I mean, I think what Mark is talking about is like, you know, kind of like pitting different sections of the working class against each other. It is like a very like limited kind of kind of class politics, right? It's not it's not the proletariat proper. Yeah, um, it's sectional. Yeah. I do like I do like how it ends though. It is it does have a very stirring short last paragraph. And he goes, uh, but again there is no cer- but again there is no certainty. There's only a chance, as Marcuse remarks in a somewhat different context. But it's only a chance because part of the proletariat is left out of the capitalist integration process. Um, so not because uh, part of the proletariat is left out of the capitalist integration process, but because capital may destroy the world before an opportunity to arises to stay its hands. Integration and death is the only integration that really gave into capitalism. Short of this final integration, one-dimensional man will not last long. He will disappear at the first breakdown of the capitalist economy. In the bloodbath, the capitalist order is now preparing for him. Capitalism, at the height of its powers, is also at its most vulnerable. It has nowhere to go but to its death. However small the chances are for revolt, this is not the time to throw in the towel. I like that last thing. How yeah, small I, the chances are for revolt. So let's not throw in the towel. I was I was actually and saying something like that to the someone today, like like someone this morning, like just like you know what if even if there's like a little chance, it doesn't make sense to give up, right? 
Yeah, exactly. It's 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 kind of like a Pascal's wager thing. I'm gonna say for it's like even, you know, if communism isn't gonna happen, you might as well stand for it because it's what's right and what's you, it's what you believe well, in. Well, that that's not that's not Pascal's wager. Pascal's wager is, well, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. You know what I mean? But if I'm right, you you well, well hello. You're living in a dystopia. Do you oppose it? I mean, yes. Yeah, but do, like, not only do you oppose it, because what I one of my favorite quotes here, if we're gonna get into a little quote, and it's right in the beginning. Uh, it's right in the beginning. It's the end of section one, I think. Um, let's see. <clears throat> uh, let's see. To transcend established conditions presupposes transcendence within these tr- within these conditions. A feat denied one-dimensional man in one-dimensional society, and thus Marcuse concludes that quote. The critical theory of society possesses no concepts which could bridge the gap between the present and the future, holding no promise and showing no success. It remains negative. In other words, the critical theory, or Marxism, is now merely a bill giste, or a, a, a grand gesture. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think that, that really shows like what Marxism becomes once you surrender hope in the working class and hope in proletarian revolution in class of society yeah it just becomes a contrarian pose to make basically i mean a grand gesture and it sticks with know, me Paul, it's interesting too because paul maddock doesn't really seem to care about the political situation he just thinks that the proletariat if it if it's gonna do what it's gonna do, it's it's gonna do it regardless of the parties or unions, basically. Yeah, has, and that, that requires a very intense amount of faith in the working class. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I appreciate someone like that, but whew. but it's yeah, it's I, not I don't, a winning I don't know. strategy. That's not it's a not, winning not, strategy. Not, yeah, and also like the contempt for democratic rights is just historically backwards. Like the, yeah, it's it's just anti-Marxist in my opinion. Oh, it's anti-Marxist and it's just like anti-Republican. It's it just it does it doesn't age well. It it's it doesn't sound left-wing. I don't mean to that. I don't mean that in a sort of like associative way. I just mean like how do you really take on? How do, how do you call the Civil Rights Act meaningless as a leftist today? I mean, he wasn't writing this today. But just reading it, I, I almost forgot about it, you know what I mean? I almost forgot about that part. How did I almost forget? Yeah, I must have skimmed over it, too. Well, that's it for this week. If you want to get hold of us, swampsidechance at gmail.com. Uh, leave us a good review on iTunes. Uh, like our stuff on places. Um, send us money. Uh, Patreon, PayPal, money good. So until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow. <laughs>